0: Wow! Well, welcome to the Free Money Podcast. This is uh, where we serve up the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately, desperately crave.
1: That guy laughing in the beginning, he's craving that Brooklyn Bay Area consensus yeah. on asset
0: owner investors free yeah. money. <laughs> Ashby made sure to screw his hair up just for this podcast.
1: Uh, we're going to, I think we're planning to convert to a vlog. Is that right?
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, once do the vlog comes still through. exist? I think so. That's a thing that happens. That uh, did. Yeah, I, that'll be like force me to actually do makeup for the first time in like four months. Um, yeah. yeah. But hey, whatever. I, this is the good news episode.
1: Yes. Well, last was silver linings. Yep. yep. Now we got and good news. So I don't even know what good the good news, news is. Yeah,
0: I have two surprising pieces, and then one that that you that you know. Uh, the, I mean, the first one, this is super cool. A company called Nugenics, um, which is a Mumbai-based biotech startup, just released okay. this clinical trial um, where they basically figured out how to reverse aging in rats. Um,
2: Whoa!
0: Yeah, and it's that they there's this this person who's associated with it who came up with the idea of the epigenetic clock. Um, you know, which is that you can tell the age of some somebody by looking at, you know, their their DNA and sort of reverse engineering it. Um, so they have this thing that they call the elixir um, that they make and then they apply the elixir to the rat and the rat is 54% younger by the epigenetic clock.
1: This is a real story or you're about to tie into a product I'm not, for I'm, selling? I,
0: I'm not at all screwing with you, yeah. This, this is a, you know, the rare... <laughs> I'm about to make a portable
1: uh, alpha joke right now, but... <laughs> <laughs> this is not our product. It's the yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, this is a free plug for a completely different product. I mean, that's amazing, Alpha, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was trying to think about things that we might remember instead of the pandemic, you know? Mm. Yeah, um, well, and- if this was
1: the beginning of, you know, re- rolling back aging. Yeah, that's amazing. I might need to go watch that Indiana Jones movie again. <laughs> see what see what kind of, you know lessons there are in there about pursuing infinite life.
0: Yeah. There might be even bigger economic problems if we're all living in <laughs> infinite retirement.
1: Do you know it's funny you say that? My first reaction was like, my gosh, what's going to happen to pension liability <laughs> <I'll live> forever. <laughs> <laughs> all these people are retired and they're living forever. I don't think they're using, the re- listeners know this, but a defined benefit pension plan is calculated uh, until you die. So the death, <laughs> is the end of the payment which is why it's so awesome for people who have it right you never have to worry about being on the street in old age (laughs) um but if you know we we figure out nanobots and you know elixirs to extend life for 200 years we're going to need to change the the compact the social compact here
0: yeah like funding funding ratios are never good ways to look at those things but they're even worse if that's true
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of smart people who have been like, look, we should be defining, you know, insurance products like annuities or defined benefit pension plans or social security based on um, mortality tables. So Mm. that, you know, if if there's a global pandemic and people are dying younger, maybe your retirement age could be younger. (laughs) But if there's an elixir that um, extends life, maybe we all need to retire later. Um. I just turned the good news into some pretty bad news. I feel bad. (laughs) So let's carry on to more good news.
0: Here's more good news. The uh, so next week, um, a SpaceX Dragon Five rocket is carrying two astronauts uh, to the International Space Station in what is the first uh, vehicle that was designed in the United States, launched in the United States since 1981, um, and the first launch of any kind from the U.S. since 2011.
1: I admit this story pumped me up. I like tingled when I was reading it. It's right? so cool. I mean, maybe it's like patriot I don't know what it is, patriotism or just I like space. <laughs> um, I would like to go there one day. But just seeing them like hitting all the buttons in their test, you know, runs as they're sitting there. And it looks such like a slick inside. To, you know, it's oh yeah. It's it's a lot slicker than like a cockpit for an airplane. It looks all all digital and cool.
0: Dragon is a sweet name for a rocket, too. I mean, it's totally. just like it's. I mean, you say whatever you want about Elon Musk, and I've got plenty to say about him. But he does know how to create a little bit of hype.
1: Do they paint a dragon mouth at the back end where the fire comes out?
0: Oh, that would be so cool.
1: What? <laughs> It's a dragon <laughs> spitting fire on Earth, <laughs> and then you could do it and rewind, and people would be like, "Oh my God, the dragon's coming!" Anyway. Oh
0: man, uh, yeah. But the third one, I mean, is like, I mean, we're going back and forth on this. ESG smoked it this quarter, uh,
1: according, and to that's a Nike good thing for those that don't know what the cool kids are saying.
0: Yeah, smoking. Uh, well, smoking is bad. You shouldn't do it. But in this, smoking instance, it,
1: good. smoking <laughs> it is good. <laughs> <laughs> No, i like all sincerity. We've been waiting for this moment for like 20 years. And now that it's happening, uh, you, you might be able to tell I'm almost giddy, you know, it's like BlackRock put out this report a little while ago where they showed that in the first quarter of 2020, 94% of the sustainable indices were outperforming their, you know, generic, um, cousins and, uh, And that's so nuts, you know, we like this question of like, will sustainability ever drive out performance? And as, as academics and researchers, we often had to like, just be happy with the idea that it doesn't harm performance. You know, it's like, you can do this and it won't harm your performance. What a great sales pitch for something. Do this thing. It won't hurt you. Um, is not necessarily the greatest, strongest, uh, endorsement, but now that we can say, do this thing it will help you in times of crisis, that's the kind of sales pitch I could get behind.
0: And there was some phrasing inside of it that I, like I am not used to hearing the term resilience. Maybe I should, you know, right? It's, it's basically a similar uh, synonym for like recovery, you know? Um, Absolutely. But like in that BlackRock report, they went, you know, not only is it on average uh, better performing, but it's the comp- the companies that have outperformance in criteria that are more important for the company specifically, we're more resilient than the rest of the sample. Um, so like board effectiveness, customer relations. Totally. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean,
1: it's, it's an incredible moment. And I guess we're my, you know, you can tell me by now, I I obviously start thinking to what's next. And now that we see that if you can get this data integrated into your portfolios, it can help you be more resilient. We need to solve the last mile problem. And the last mile problem is how do we actually get this data into our portfolios? The integration of this data is going to be the, this great challenge and resiliency in my mind, that word you said is such an important part of that because sustainability is a bit of a fluffy term, but resilience kind of invokes like a strong piece of real estate or, you know, a sturdy human being who is healthy and can withstand, you know, it's like it, it, connotes something when you hear the word resilient
0: most of most of the articles when i googled it were about like mental health uh yeah you know yeah. resilience yeah. i'm super i mean like we gotta learn more about this
1: yeah we should probably call a friend do we have a friend lined up today <laughs> uh we do and she is genius. fabulous the fabulous Jean Rogers started the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board and is now the Chief Resiliency Officer at the Long
0: Term Stock Exchange, and she's about to pick up her phone. So we hope. So we hope. Yeah, we we don't exactly have an anti-fragile. Ah, oh, hi, a... hi, Jean. <laughs> you
1: yeah, got. I love it. She's already laughing. This is gonna go great. Oh, uh, Jean, you got Ashby the and Sloan. You're on. Hi. I mean, we we call it live. It's literally not live, but we don't like to edit, so we pretend like it's live. Um, this is live of the Freebody Podcast, and uh, we're so excited to have you. I just did a little intro of you, um, but how are you doing?
2: I am doing great. I was listening to your last podcast and I want one of those OMG t shirts. I wanna know. That, that's what I want for my appearance on your podcast.
1: We we can make that happen. We can yeah, make we, that happen. We, we, we it's funny, that's the first store. guest to ask for swag. <laughs> that's we point. probably we probably need swag.
2: You on need swag. swag. You need that because free money, although free, wearing a free money T-shirt down the street, you might just get accosted for the wrong reasons. <laughs> it might just it, yeah. it get ugly. Well, people yeah. will
1: give you money because they assume you're asking <laughs> or,
2: for Well, it. maybe. Maybe it might go the other way. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> we should do an experiment so being, on we that. We were just
1: actually. talking. Exactly. We were just talking about this uh, BlackRock report. Which came out and said ninety-four percent of the sustainable indices are outperforming their peers. And then Sloan and I were like rapping about a whole bunch of stuff. So we want to start getting your opinions on this topic. So Sloan, jump into your first Yeah, first yeah, question. yeah.
0: I mean, like I I think like what's really interesting, the BlackRock report had this thing where it looked at the materiality. It like basically they decomposed ESG the into fifteen different sub segments and then they looked at which of the individual segments are most Relevant to the specific companies, and where they were the most relevant, there was the most outperformance, which one might expect. But I'm I'm curious about like what kind of risks were being resilient to. Like, is it a risk like a pandemic, or is it a risk like a market downturn?
2: So, so I th- I think just um just just thinking about the BlackRock report, what what they're really getting at is is sort of. What we've kind of spent the last decade figuring out, which is when ESG issues are material for an industry or for a company and when they're not. And, and when they mm-hmm. are and when a company can manage those material issues well, they're going to outperform. It's, it's the kind of the basic fundamental definition of materiality, basically. You know, if, if it's material to your company and you're going to manage that risk well, you will see. The finance, you will see it in the financial performance, and if it's not material you won't so um so that's that's what they're kind of reaffirming or affirming um in that in that sort of framework and um, what what I think is interesting is is how you know in the in the broader scale of things in in sort of you know that that report was a, a response to in some ways the pandemic, or in some ways trying to understand, is ESG investing still going to be a thing, you know, now Mm. that we have this global pandemic, you know, it's been a thing for the last, it was the thing, really, for the last decade in in investing, and really looking at, you know, is this still holding up, and we saw, Mm. you know, just to put some numbers, 20, 20 billion of new capital. Going into sustainable funds in 2019, a big inrush um, into ESG funds. Q1 of 2020, which in- includes the um, time of the pandemic, um, set even new records. Ten, another 10 billion invested just in Q1, and it's just continuing to go that direction. And I think that's because you know what the BlackRock report was trying to get at: there is now a perception. Uh, based on prior studies, that these companies manage risk better than other companies. They're less volatile. Uh, and so that is and, and that is what we're seeing kind of play out in that report.
0: That, that's, I mean, yeah, it's amazing to have like this, you know, kind of thought that like people who do well get rewarded, right? And I mean, because I really want the world to work, to work that way. But I'm curious specifically about that notion of resilience, because like, I mean, if I were to look at a public company, what would I be looking for as an indicator of resilience?
2: Well, I think, you know, here's, here's the thing. I think this gets at the difference between what ESG traditionally looks at or what ESG looks at now and maybe where we need to go. And I think that the pandemic has really highlighted in some ways the the, the gaps in ESG data, and I know that that might sound crazy to people who follow the field and n- know that there's there's literally an ESG industrial complex of data now out there and it you know it's incredibly burdensome and there's hundreds of issues that and and tons of frameworks that company needs needs to report against. but at the end of the day it didn't help us it doesn't help us understand the pandemic it didn't help us understand things like the me too movement, opioid addiction, consumer interest in plastics, you know, it, it you can just keep going back, right? fracking. You can, you can just keep going back to, you know, environmental or social issues that manifest as acute events or exogenous shocks to the to companies. and ESG data in no way, you know, helps you predict those because It's really focused on known unknowns. And what we're talking about is unknown unknowns, right? What, what, what is possibly coming that we don't know about and who's going to be able to manage that well? Uh, which industries and which companies? And that's like what investors are hungry for right now. And the, the pandemic has highlighted that. And, but it's at the same time highlighted that. ESG data didn't get any of those other things either, right? It, yeah. it, because because by the time, and I, you know, I know a thing or two about standard setting. By the time it's in a standard, there's general agreement that it's material. There's been, you know, tons of conversations about what's the right metric. How do we measure it? Um, and we finally get it in. There's been all kinds of exposure drafts, right? That. Think about that time scale it 's a glacial mm. time scale compared to how these acute events happen, so we have to fundamentally rethink if ESG data or ESG investing is going to kind of properly do its job not just not just assess known risks but unknown risks. we have to move from ESG to thinking about resilience, and that and that's a concept I've been thinking about and and working on at the Long Term Stock Exchange mm. to really kind of unpack like what does it mean for a company to outperform over the long term to be resilient against these exogenous shocks, and really what it what it comes down to, Sloan is moving from and I, I got to credit Howard Marks for this moving from he's a you know kind of a Value investing guru and he he has always said that value investing is really looking at second order data for an advantage, not just first order data and he means like what drives the financial performance we We need to look at that, and that's really at the core of being a successful value investor so taking that that idea and applying it to e s g all ESG is just like first-order data. It's just a lot more first-order data, right, that helps us with efficient markets and price discovery if it's material, but it's still all first-order data. It's like, how are you doing on safety? How are you doing on resource efficiency? How are you doing on those greenhouse gas emissions? And what we really need to do is understand what muscles are companies building that enable them to outperform no matter what is coming their way, whether it 's in the standard or not, um, and those characteristics, which are like second order characteristics of companies those that's that 's what we need to understand that 's what resilience mm-hmm. is and and we've we 've been um, looking at that and I can can talk more about what those what those aspects of resilience look like, but it 's really a fundamental shift in thinking about. Let's throw more and more issues on the pile that companies need to disclose on. And, you know, we need to move from producing data to producing outcomes, you know, better outcomes, more innovation, human progress, you know, those kinds of things. And I think that's what the ESG movement actually wants at the end of the
0: day. Yeah, I mean, that item 1A in the filing is already pretty long for a publicly traded company, the risk factors section. So, I, I mean, this seems, sounds like we're thinking more about risk in terms of like risk of a permanent capital loss um but I, i'm curious like how how would i um if i'm looking at a company and it's like jacked resilience wise like really good Oh
2: right what um, does that look like yeah, but,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i love that you know it when you see it <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> you know it when you see it exactly and well you know what okay i'm going to start from knowing it when you're seeing it and then remind me to do if i forget to talk about what uh, about when you, when companies are not resilient, because we also know what that looks like. And mm-hmm. um, in fact, I kind of started there, and we sort of backed into it. But a really jacked company that is super resilient for the long term, which, by the way, is what long term investors should be looking for um, in companies um, that they're going to outperform over the long term, um, has five dimensions, five, five, like, muscles, five competencies. Um, and the first one is is actually impact, but not what you would think. It's like transformative impact in their vision. The The bigness of their vision matters um, because it creates momentum. People and other stakeholders and policymakers, employees rally around, including investors, rally around the company because they want that company to succeed in achieving that big vision. So think Tesla and its vision not only of producing amazing cars, but transitioning to a, a renewables based landscape infrastructure. Um, and that bigness of the vision really can carry a company um, through volatile events and tough times. So um, that's that's the first one. The second one is something we call inventiveness. and And that's like prolific inventiveness, prolific innovation, where you don't have to really worry about your IP so much because you're actually confident you're going to produce more like you don't have to protect you can open source it and um, and enable human progress enable others to build on what you're doing and um, and and you're you're going to continue to execute because you're investing in innovation you've created a culture of experimentation so inventiveness is the second one and you know think um, think google um that you know puts a great deal of of capex into innovation and long-term strategy think amazon um, that invests uh uh more in r&d than marketing actually um the, these are really important uh markers of invent- inventiveness um the third aspect is culture it's how you build a company that puts people first. And by the way, you you don't have to have all these things, but a really jacked company would have all of them. Um, uh, so so putting people first is um, a really important aspect, and and that is um, where it, that gives you a talent advantage over the long term. Um, the fourth one is a really interesting one. It's having a signal advantage. We're calling it sort of really being able to read through all these crazy information sources that we all are exposed to now 24-7 and at a corporate level being able to make sense of it and quickly act on it and that is something that uh, companies really have to be built for to be able to to process and act on information really quickly. Um, think about Square when you think about them. They're a financial services mobile payment company, but they um, have decentralized project teams. They are organized around sourcing really high-quality customer feedback through surveys, numerical, numerical data, and customer conversations. And they cap their teams at at 12 so that they can move really quickly on the information. That's a great example of a company that has a signal advantage. Um, The last one is one that's called um, alignment. This is a muscle for companies that are really thinking about creating shared value with their stakeholders, maintaining true alignment with all of their stakeholders. And this is a hard one. Um, this, This is like not only maintaining alignment with your investors, your long-term investors, your board, your management, your employees, um, but also your customers and other constituents. They all have different priorities. And your job as a company is to think about how you maintain alignment in in the face of those those differing um, priorities. And here's the one where I'll just talk for a few minutes about we really see this when it's out of whack. We really see negative events when there's misalignment. Think about, you know, Wells Fargo and opening all the fake customer accounts, right? And, I mean, that's just such an egregious example of being completely misaligned with your customer interests, right? There's no way if you were building a culture of alignment – you would have any kind of that practice you know happening. think about Boeing and putting planes out that you know are unsafe, right Think about j and J with baby powder and marketing it in ways that you know are unsafe um, to use the product and It kind of goes on on tobacco opioids. Um, But it's also more subtle things like companies that are building young companies and maybe they're looking for product market fit and they don't quite have the business model worked out and they're a tech company and it's got this great, you know, great engine, great app. And then... All of a sudden, they're like, you know what? They're totally in sync with their customers. Customers love them. They're like, wow, we got to make money. We're going to start selling data. And there you go, misalignment with, you know, data privacy and data security Mm -hmm. and other things. That's a great, you know, a great example of how a company can start out, you know, aligned and then for, you know, certain pressures, if they haven't thought through how they're really going to maintain alignment with their customers, um, get really off track and, and, and sometimes not recover. So, um, so those are the five vision uh, impact, sorry, big, big vision, which is having an impact inventiveness, culture, people, first culture, um, signal advantage, being able to read those signals and act on them. And then finally stakeholder alignment.
1: That's awesome. Gene, I was going to jump in um, with uh, one comment and then a, a follow up question. Uh, first comment is, I'm now pretty worried you don't want to start a business with me doing murder hornet data. <laughs> <laughs> you basically just killed my next big business idea. Yeah. Murder hornet data set yeah, scenarios.
0: It's an Uber for murder hornets. Like,
1: yeah, I mean, like, look, we all need a murder hornet scenario in our <laughs> ESG toolkit, I thought, <laughs> until this conversation. So I'm You're already –
2: yeah, well, we'll this, I think that this this model of resilience is actually it, – it's quite interesting. We start to see a lot of young companies, maybe not the murder hornet company yet, but we're starting <laughs> to see like – we're starting to see these characteristics. We, we, we've been doing some research. At the long-term stock exchange to say, like, does this have any legs, right? Do we can we do we see these attributes in companies that actually do perform well in periods of ter- high turbulence in the market and outperform over the long term? Is 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 any of this based in reality? So we went to look for these attributes. We went out to look, you know, a little research project, and said, you know, hey, let's just let's just look at um, some a cohort that outperforms a cohort that underperforms. In high turbulence in the markets and and see if they 're there and, and 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 the interesting thing is that we we saw these attributes you know to a certain degree and certainly in the ones that outperform, not at all in the ones that underperform, but we actually see them a lot more in private companies and what i don 't know is is there just a new cohort of young companies now that mm-hmm. are coming up where this is more natural way of building a company and they're really different than the companies that are mature and in the public markets. And we're kind of built with like Michael Porter's, you know, rivalry model of, you know, going to market and like kill or be killed. And um, is it fundamentally like a different set of values that private companies have or, um, or are those attributes there when they're younger and they get, beaten out of them in the public markets, which is a really depressing thing to think about. <laughs> and I, I don't know the answer to that. It's probably beaten that. out of them. Yeah, that's oh, like a really no. top
0: mental model.
1: <laughs> Every quarter, they just get crushed by different analysts. Exactly. that are like, didn't meet my expectations. Like, your dad or mom. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my question. My question. That was a comment that inspired that log response but so my my question is you have been very famous for championing materiality uh as an issue and SASB is all about materiality in industries and what's material to a company now you're at the long term stock exchange and i know some of the work you're doing there how do we think about materiality for investors you talk a lot about alignment, but p- part of this transaction of like, we want to measure things in companies and we want to consume those measurements as investors is figuring out what are the indicators that are material to the investment community. Something will be material to one investor that won't be material to another in terms of the way they think and make decisions. Are you working on that at all at LTSC? Is it, you know, something we can look forward to, or is it more um, still something we need to do research yeah, on? well...
2: Uh- I think both, first of all, short answer. I mean, we need a lot more work in this area, especially, you know, on long-termism and how we measure this both, you know, for investors and so so companies know what they should be building against, what those long-term metrics are. And it it is, you know, I think of this as – dynamic materiality, right? I think SASB is static materiality. Like anything you're going to build a standard against and hardwire a standard, it's going to be static. By definition, you know, if it takes you five years to get to the answer, um, it, it's static. And, and and that's, I mean, that's the way FasB is built too, right? That's where, the way our financial standards are. The standards themselves are hardwired. And so therefore the issues are in, you know, SASB. And those are, I think enduring, you know, issues that are material, that are, that are, that are, you know, operational. But I think of this as dynamic materiality and being better able to understand which companies and, and which industries are agile, are flexible, are, are going to be able to pull us out of this, uh, out of this crisis, but also, you know, are positioned well for any crisis because they have these qualities, and so there are certain ways that we can begin to measure this. and And we're nowhere near, you know, um, you know, but publishing or or really, um, under completely understanding what we need to measure. But based on what we already stand, uh, understand about these qualities. It really does, you know, get at the core of what a company is investing in themselves Mm -hmm. that should be of interest to investors. And by that, I mean, is it investing its capex against its long-term strategy? Is it investing more in R&D than marketing? Um, great examples is Roche. I, I did a study with um, George, uh, Professor George Serafim at Harvard last year to look at stakeholder alignment and how things become material, particularly with stakeholder pressure, and which is an, another way of saying, you know, that stakeholders can create this condition of dynamic materiality it wasn't material for a company one day and now stakeholders are up in arms about it now it's a material condition for the company Um, so when we looked at this though we were studying the pharma industry and there's a paper out it uh, about it for any of your listeners it's called pathways to materiality but we looked at pharma companies and we saw that um most pharma companies invest more in marketing than they do in R&D. The, the, uh, if you just look at the numbers, wow. there's a, right. a greater, greater proportion. But Roche was the one standout. Last year, when we were looking at this, that invested more in R and D and marketing, and they're a European company, and there's probably something to do with that we allow direct advertising here in the U S. You know, direct to consumer, uh, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole now. But but Roche, <laughs> Roche invests. You don't want to talk about in... people
1: with bathtubs outside holding hands.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, move oh on. man. It's super scary. But but like oh well maybe we should talk about it. I mean, just think about that. Like, is that really a good investment, you know, in healthcare outcomes? The fact that, you know, our pharmaceutical companies are investing in direct to consumer advertising. Like, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea if that pill is good for me or not. Like, why are you even talking to me about
1: seeing this with the sunset <laughs> <Right. laptop> outside? <laughs> it's
2: just scary but but Rose, you know the only one that we found that that had it the other way, the majority of the investment going into r and d was uh, was the first um, fda approved uh, covid nineteen antibody test, right? I saw that a few weeks ago, and I was completely not surprised. I was like, yep, bingo that 's what happens when a company invests more in r and d more in the future than in the present, which is really what you 're saying in in terms of marketing versus R&D. So so there's a metric, right? That's a simple metric. It's what is the company investing in? What is the company's priorities? Um, Are they investing in people? What are they investing in human capital? And I think if you understand, you know, where a company is putting its money, you as an investor begin to understand what their long-term, in some ways, um, commitment is, and how aligned that is with your own commitment, if you're a long-term investor.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, the the I want to ask a, about a conspiracy theory that I've been hearing, and I think
1: this is the la, the we we've been. This is probably your, your last question, though, Sloan. You're going to ask the last. Is it conspiracy theory? All right, hit it. Uh,
0: well, no, it's a good one. Um, so like the the one of the things that I've heard about ESG by cynics it, that the cynics will bring up is that um that if if there are uniform characteristics of companies that tend to perform well on ESG metrics they tend to be things like having fewer employees um and i, I just sort of wonder uh like if if you have a thought on you know whether it, you know investors could be reacting to something like that uh you know like i mean google facebook square um i don't know about Roche but a lot of the companies that we've talked about are have definitely lower employee counts per unit of revenue uh, or sorry, a higher uh, ratio of uh, revenue to employees. What math is hard. It's Friday, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Uh, do, do you have any thoughts? I mean, are these conspiracy theorists, uh, you know, onto something or is it, you know, the best kind of conspiracy theory, the totally bonkers kind?
2: Yeah. I mean, not having, actually heard that particular conspiracy theory um, it's uh, but it's a it's a, it's slightly off i think I think what what you're getting at actually from again the companies that you're getting at something called what I call um, light lightweight companies um, yeah. companies that are typically tech companies built around platforms that scale. Greatly compared to the the number of employees, um, and that they are typically, uh, or not typically, sometimes viewed by ESG investors as being um, better ESG companies. And is, am I am I right before I comment? Yeah, exactly. That's that, exactly. Yeah, right. you co- okay. Okay. So 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 th- th- the way I view it though actually is is and this is going on up. Big rabbit hole of like ESG ratings, which are the intermediaries, and there's absolutely no correlation between any ESG ratings, and and we should do another podcast on that, but, <laughs> but be, because it's 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 really insane, and and someone needs to just you know. Really, bring clarity to that, and um you know, ask you guys at Stanford should really just be looking at rationalizing this yeah because because what what happens is there's so many issues and they get weighted all differently that that's how like. Tesla can be, you know, number one on one ESG rating and at the bottom of the barrel on, on another one. And that actually happened like about a year ago um, on two yeah. of the very most famous ESG ratings. It was like top of the industry and the other one was bottom because one of them rated um, environmental really high, like environmental impact, which Tesla's are obviously hitting it out of the park, but the other one rated governance really high, which sometimes yeah. Elon gets a little carried away at 420, maybe sometimes tweeting. And so it's like, you know, so so that can be of concern, right? Sometimes, you know, certainly you can see how... If you were more concerned about governance, you might you might not like yeah. that. But if you were more concerned about the environment and you were rate, you were weighting those factors higher, so what happens with the tech stocks or the lightweight? I'm just going to more broadly call it like lightweight um, companies that don't have um, huge huge investment uh, in human capital. Um, they are also typically good on environment. Because they are not producing um, per unit of product or per unit of revenue, they are not producing as much carbon emissions. Yeah, data centers, um, but typically they're they're um, more more carbon efficient, more climate efficient than other companies. So they, and that is either the number one or number two issue that ESG investors have typically cared about. Pre-COVID, um, and so those that would have been weighted more, and therefore those companies have outperformed. Uh, but on other ratings, you know, uh, you know, they've been some of those same tech companies haven't been quite up there with governance, and mm. um, haven't quite been up there on you know diversity, um, investment in human capital uh things harassment you know issues in the tech industry uh so and those have gotten scrutiny as well so it it's a kind of thing where you have to look kind of issue by issue and um how companies are performing uh, to get a complete picture on ESG, and then investors are—they're are, just at the mercy of the readers, which are the intermediaries, and what the readers think about how to weight, you know, these different topics, and that might not align with every investor, and—and and that's the real time. And that's why I think we have to move again. Move, the answer isn't to like just keep throwing more and more disclosure, more and more topics and issues on the pile that companies have to you know put data out so that the intermediaries can get rich the answer is to start looking at what is really wired into the company in terms of their commitments and their investments if there are people first organization you know they've got good governance and they're investing in innovation for the long term you know these are the kinds of things that you don't you don't need hundreds of did on hundreds of indicators you you can in some ways trust that they're going to continue on that trajectory
0: that's really satisfying so good
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's like
1: i mean you just killed so many of my data businesses but,
0: <laughs> oh, uh, no, no, no,
2: but no 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 wait, wait no i'm just joking can i give you one more example or do you guys you can edit it out <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, edit love it. Yeah. we don't edit but yeah <laughs> uh,
2: okay. Okay. Can I? Well, then, do you have time for like one more. one more? Do one more. more.
0: Yeah. Okay,
2: one more because it's a data. It's a data example. That's a positive example. And I just came across this company um, recently. They're a private company, and it's it's one that I'm hopeful for. Well, I'm hopeful for all private companies that we're actually seeing a trend in resilience, and that the long term stock exchange can somehow tilt the playing field so that it doesn't just get hammered out of these companies Let's they go public, but devoted. Health is a a private company. And we were looking at them for resilience, like where are these aspects of resilience? And what's really interesting to me when I look at private companies and I see resilience is that I often see multiple aspects of resilience um, in one company. It's like they're just Doing like everything right. So these guys are like transforming healthcare for seniors, um, Medicare Advantage programs. And they're like, tagline, it's like Southwest, but for healthcare, they're like doing it with love, right? Uh-huh. And they're, and I know, and it's, it's so sweet. And, and I have to just like give them a shout out because, and I am not an investor. I have no affiliation with this company. So, you know, I, they, they're just, They're winning 45% of new Medicare signups in the two markets that they're in, Florida and Texas. And here's the thing. There's a data stack at the center they built for this. They built to know everything about their members, right? Signal Advantage, they have that data. They're really close to their customers. They have called every single one of their 18,000 members during the COVID crisis. They've only lost two of their seniors, During the crisis, um, way better than anyone else. They have a net promoter score of 85, 85 people are like insane (laughs) about this company. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so, but the Uh, data, their data enabled, they are absolutely, so data When it's a signal that keeps you aligned with your stakeholders, then you're creating sort of like this virtuous cycle. But here's the best thing. Here's another signal. They So culture advantage. All of their employees are empowered. Principles-based management. Make every decision as if a family member's life depends on it. Talk about, like, building a culture that's aligned with the members, with the customers, right? They are, they're going to, every, everybody can envision how things are going to go down in that company, right? It's going to be a good thing for humanity. And so, so we see, like, this is a company, what it, what did you say, Sloan? Like, if they're super, like, amped on, like, resilience, this, oh, yeah, they, this is racked. one, jacked up. They're jacked yeah. up on Sloan. resilience. This is one. So, <laughs>
1: That's awesome. All yeah, right. Yeah, but
2: you know. data's at the center, so don't despair, Ashby. You just keep keep at it. I, I know I will, you'll, you'll, I you'll you'll evolve. You'll find that product market fit with your with your Murder with hornet your data. hornet. Yeah.
0: And, and we'll <laughs> threaten right now to have you back on the podcast to talk we about might. the uh,
2: yeah. All right, yeah. guys. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you, time. Swan. Thank you, Ashby. Really great to all talk right. to you. Yeah. All right. You as well.
1: Bye. Bye. Bye for
2: now.
0: That was awesome.
1: Yeah, Jean Rogers. She is uh, probably one of the smartest and yet willing to laugh um, human beings I know. I mean, she just mixes the most intelligent things uh, with just a great sense of humor. So yeah, yeah, she's great. She didn't talk as much about LTSE, but maybe we'll get that next time she comes on. I also felt like you guys weren't quite aligned on your definition of jacked with it's her true, definition yeah. of jacked. I thought you were saying jacked like a car is
0: jacked. Oh, like, like a stolen good. car. No, I, oh, I meant jacked like, you know, puffed Buff. up. Yeah.
1: The, oh, okay. You guys like, were – I was misaligned then. Yeah, exactly. You guys the, were fully the, the, aligned. You yeah. Didn't get,
0: you didn't get the data download obviously but I didn't get the data download. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a single processing disadvantage you were at. <laughs>
1: we, we also need a t-shirt for one of her comments, the ESG industrial complex. Oh
0: man. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's just great to hear her riff on that a little bit.
0: That's, I mean, it's definitely time to threaten to start a t-shirt store. Um, but you know what else it's time for? hit me. Oh man, it's time for dear Ashby. Uh, here we go. The, uh, yeah, this is the time in the, in the program when, uh, we take questions from you, the beloved listeners, and, uh, we put them to the one and only Dr. Ashby Monk. Um, Esquire. I don't is that, are, I'm not a lawyer. Is that real?
1: You're- <laughs> no, that's not a real thing.
0: <laughs> MD, PhD. Yeah, it's, it's, he's also a surgeon. Anyway. DPhil. I'm, D-Phil. Not even, I'm
1: a DPhil. <laughs> In Oxford, they're like, why do we speak Latin? We speak English. Like, mm. doctor of philosophy. <laughs> Sick. Uh, yeah.
0: But so, the first question that we have for, uh, for this week is, what is the better disaster risk hedge? Gold or Bitcoin? Ooh.
1: Ooh yeah, gold or Bitcoin, boy. um, I love that you picked the two non-state currencies of like different millennia. Like Bitcoin is the non-state currency of this millennia, and gold was the one of the you know the prior five. Um, (laughs) You know, because gold, like gold coins, like that used to be money. You know, it's like the ultimate store store of wealth. Um, I guess like in thinking about it. Gold, you don't need ongoing power. You know, I'm go- I went pretty deep on this question. I wasn't just like, <laughs> let me look at the pricing yeah, dynamics yeah, yeah, and yeah. give yeah. you a chartist answer. Uh, no, I was like, hmm. Like, let's imagine it really gets bad for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like, for Bitcoin to work, you need a lot of power, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, the size of a country the size of Switzerland consumes the same power as it does to keep Bitcoin alive and functioning. Yeah. And, uh, and often that's in China. So that's probably dirty, dirty power. Um, so I don't love the notion that investors are going to pour money into Bitcoin and uh, as a store of value. I also don't love the notion of gold. I mean, it's, um, it's a nerd. at least we don't have to mine it again, but it's, yeah. it's just such a random thing. If I was like really looking for a hedge or a downside in the, in the ultimate catastrophe, I might think of land you know on earth they're not making any of that anymore yeah. and it you know we're still growing as a population so my guess is if you have land and you buy it you know you look out 70 years it's probably worth more and uh and things like water you know i'm sure i'm actually pretty sure people are out there buying up water rights right now and things like that that are these you know goods that absolutely are required for survival and have value because the you know the state gave them Gave them value by creating these rights. So, yeah, those are the types of things I would expect. But between the two, I would say gold, mm, gold yeah. or Bitcoin, gold.
0: I think you kind of need to be crazy like a fox in order to effectively hedge a tail risk. Uh, like the yeah.
1: I mean, we talked about it last week with yeah. with the Calvary stuff. It's it's expensive. It's hard to do. You know, usually you're wrong, um, and that's the point. You're yeah. wrong way more than you're right because it's and it's an edge case.
0: My, my friend Jason uh, Voss convinced me that. Uh, the thing to accumulate in the event of the end of the world is a a distillery still like, so that you can make alcohol. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the best answer I've ever heard.
1: It's funny. It's uh, yeah. Somebody asked me this morning, if I had to choose one product that I would be willing to be the spokesman for. (laughs) And I chose Chardonnay. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I would definitely be the Chardonnay
0: spokesperson,
1: (laughs) especially if it came with, a lot of Chardonnay. I'm a yeah, big exactly. fan. Yeah,
0: a lifetime supply of that. Exactly. <laughs> Her, uh, so here's the next one. Uh, how does the pandemic change your view of the active versus, path versus passive debate, if at all?
1: I mean, if it could have gotten more negative on active, it probably did. Mm. Um it's so, and and I assume we're talking here, this is public markets, right? So I think like already my mind was made up, like the most likely places where you can truly outperform your peers is in private markets where information can be, um, you know, sequestered and hidden and you can keep it away from everybody else and still not get in trouble or get the information and not get in trouble in public markets. we got all these rules. And, and so, On the one hand, I think a lot of really smart people are wrong right now about where the market should be. Um, I'm sure there's a few smart people that have it right, but uh, it it just feels like everybody is waiting for some big catastrophe that is being delayed by the government and the Fed. And so it just is a reminder, you can be an active manager and do the most amazing short and the government can swoop in and be like, nope. You know, we're, we're the fed and we're just going to keep buying junk bonds. Um, and, and so I think it's probably really hard to be an active manager right now and think you understand what's going on and then in effect, have the rules changed on you. Yep. So yeah, that's, that's my two cents on that.
0: Well, yeah. And it's the stereotype of like hedge fund managers, Besides the question I'm about to ask you is, you know, just sitting there and being like the fed broke our model. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then and then
1: people are like model risk. <laughs> Have uh, you done your diligence on their model? The model risk and all this, and it's like, dude, <laughs> yeah, we're not. We're not. You're not going to like diligence whether or not the model is robust enough to overcome the Fed putting four trillion dollars in. You know, it's like, yeah, it's it's an act of God, basically.
0: I mean, like, yeah. it's literally Jerome Powell is God in the markets. And there's no other way yeah. to think about it.
1: I mean, what are we, I mean I I don't know where we're at, but la- last I heard, they are based. They've put a lot of capital out. Yep. Um, yeah. I don't want to give incorrect information on this fact-based podcast, but it is a huge number. And yeah. And then I saw a really interesting tweet yesterday where somebody said that the Fed tried to unwind some of the holdings they had of eight hundred billion at the end of in twenty eighteen, and that was like catastrophic for the markets. Did yep. You see that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I think um, I, I used to go to a couple of Fed, like the annual Fed, like research conferences that they had in New York. You can just sign up for these things. Apparently, you don't even need to be like. <laughs> <villain>. <laughs> yeah. You just sort of show up. Um, and I, I'm never going to forget. There was this huge thing like uh, five years after the crisis where they were looking at like what the interventions did uh, like and what they could like empirically uh, trace out of them. And The only places where they really had, you know, really firm estimations were around, like, how much money their trading counterparties skimmed off of them um, Mm. in various different things. And, you know, of course, there are, like, systematic patterns of, like, certain counterparties getting, uh, you know, better deals from the Fed than others. And you can guess which ones those are,
2: Um,
0: you know. uh, (laughs) But, yeah, anyway. Um, I'm going to ask a happy question now. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's move on. Uh, um, the Patagonia vest used to be a staple of venture capitalist wardrobes. Oh yeah. I'm wondering, are they still as prevalent in the era of quarantine? I'm real, I'm really hoping not. You know, it's funny. I, I have,
1: uh, with one of the projects outside of free money, uh, which is a major project of mine, but outside of free money podcast, I am in the process of like helping out, um, and doing some, some work where I talk to a bunch of venture capitalists. And I have to say that I haven't noted the Patagonia anymore, but Whoa. it's, uh, yeah, it is the, um, moving zoom background, you know, it's not the <laughs> zoom background that is like just the random photo. Oh. It's the one where the wave crashes and you're like, wait, <laughs> are they? Is that real? Is the pet ostrich standing back there a real ostrich? And you kind of have to wonder. Uh, but I think people have figured out how to make the Zoom backgrounds move. Mm. And I, I have feel like I've seen that like three or four times in the past week. Um, that and Allbirds. Oh, yeah. Allbirds. All birds, birds, you know, all Allbirds are... are the new Patagonia, if we're honest. Oh, man. Nice. Those are <laughs> Those are shoes from New Zealand, for those of you that don't know.
0: They're super comfortable and they look like socks.
1: Yeah, and I have once broke my elbow wearing them because I stepped off a curb, and there's absolutely no ankle support, (laughs) (laughs) and I literally broke my elbow wearing Alberts. Well, I mean, sorry, Alberts.
0: If you're going to do stuff like a venture capitalist, you know that entails risk. Uh, That does
1: high um, risk, high reward.
0: But we're uh, we're running a little bit over our usual time, and we want to be good with your time, so we'll we'll leave you, dear listener, uh, right now. But that doesn't mean we don't love you. we and uh, you know, I think I forgot to mention earlier that if you want to ask a question, um, please email us, reach out, um, slide into either uh, Ashby's or my DMs on Twitter, or send us an email, FreeMoneyPod at gmail And nothing is too crazy or too offbeat. Uh, we
1: will answer it seriously.
0: Yeah, exactly, um, <laughs> cheese its or cheese nips. You know, <laughs> cheese its. Cheese its. Yeah, cheese nips are. are fake like yeah
1: that. no no we're answering every question seriously here
0: <laughs> yeah i mean like we don't even want to entertain the cheese nips um yeah, anyway <laughs> bye let me get rain on them